Welcome to Bayview Glen Church. We work together so that everyone, everywhere, can experience God's love and His created purpose through Jesus. As we pursue our mission, we embrace six core values. Jesus first, everybody somebody, we're better together. We've been made new to renew. God gets our best and God can do it. I don't know what you did over uh, the Christmas holiday, but my family and I went to Mexico. Uh, someone gifted us uh, a, a place to stay down there for a week, and we stayed at a resort down there. And uh, my kids are five and 18 months old, and so what that means is when they're on vacation, they wake up at like six o'clock in the morning ready to go to the pool which is not a vacation at all, really, uh, for me. But that's what happens is Kaya taps me on the forehead and said, Daddy, it's morning. I'm like, it's dark. It's not morning. And we get up and go to the pool. And we brought a bunch of pool toys with us uh, down there. We brought like things to dive for and like flippers. And one of the things we brought is this big inflatable turtle. And so we got there, we inflated the turtle, and the kids started playing with it. Kanan liked being on it, floating around. Kyle liked playing with it. And the other kids at the pool that they met, like, you know, just friends that they had met uh, there at the resort, they enjoyed it too. And on about day two, this turtle started to lose air. I mean, it just started to deflate, right? And when it was deflated, it wasn't fun anymore because it didn't float and it was floppy and all that stuff. And so if you're a child and you need hot air, where do you go? Dads. Dads have a lot of hot air. So, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So I'm talking about somebody better give me an amen this morning. I'm going to preach about dads having hot air. So, so I have to inflate this turtle. And I had to inflate it multiple times over the course of the next three or four days because the thing just kept leaking. It kept losing air. And if it was inflated, it was great. and Everybody loved it. But if it was leaking, it was no fun anymore. And that's how it goes with vision, my friends. Vision leaks. Vision leaks. We could have a vision as a church or a mission as a church or whatever, and maybe we filled that bucket up once before, but it continues to leak out, and we've got to come back and refill it over and over and over because if our vision kind of deflates, it's no fun anymore. It's not practical anymore. It's not going to help us anymore. We don't know where we're headed. So here's what we're going to do over the next two weeks. What we're going to do is hopefully kind of refill that vision bucket, or to use our analogy this morning, to blow some hot air back into that inflatable turtle, right? We're going to try to refill vision together and to be reminded of who we are as a body, who we are as a church, what is our mission, why do we even exist, what's our vision, our values, all of those things, and we're going to talk about the vision and mission that God has called us to as a global big C church and as Bayview Glen little C church. And I know that some of you, you're like, oh, I don't like the vision sermons. And I'm like, that's not my most favorite thing. Let's just teach the Bible. Except for the Bible says in Proverbs 29 that without vision, the people perish, 
Without vision, the people cast off restraint, some other Bible translations would say. And so we have to kind of keep coming back to this vision thing in order not just to know the Bible, but to do the Bible. A friend of mine, Graham, once, says, once said, I'm tired of Bible studies. I want to be in a Bible do. We just read it and do it. So we're reading it without vision. The people perish. So let's just be reminded of our vision over the next couple of weeks. Pray with me. God, I pray that uh, you would cause us to be unified under this flag of mission and vision. What you've called us to and where we're headed. Remind us of what that is today and instruct us as to how we can participate together in accomplishing what you've called us to. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Um, how many of you have been here at Bayview Glen for more than 20 years? Shoot your hand up for me, would you? Shoot your hand up. Wow. Wow. Very cool. How many of you have been at Bayview Glen for less than six months? Shoot your hand up. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Awesome. How many of you are Tyndale students? You just came back. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, Tyndale students. That's amazing. Uh, you know, we come from all different places in kind of this, not just this spiritual journey, but also our journey here at Bayview Glen Church. Some of us kind of went away for a while and came back. Some of us have been here a very long time. Some of us have been here a very short time. But no matter who you are, where you come from, how long you've been here, we have to remember our mission. We have to remember why we exist, why we even do what we do. Why do we uh, gather together? Why do we have programs? Why do we have a budget? Why do we call ourselves Bayview Glen Church, we have to remember why we exist, because without that, the people perish. We have to remember our vision. Our vision is our preferred future. The difference between a vision and a dream, by the way, is that a vision has a metric. You can measure it, whether or not you achieve it, and it also has a timeline associated to it. A dream is just kind of this pie-in-the-sky thing that hopefully maybe we'll do this someday, but a vision has a date attached to it. Our vision here at Baby Glen Church has a date attached to it, 2030. That's the date. I'm shooting for December 31, 2030, not January 1, 2030, just to give us all a little bit more time, all right? And then, then we have our values. That's, that's how we behave. You know, we wouldn't say at Baby Glen Church that the end justifies the means. You know, if we accomplish our vision, it doesn't matter how we behave as we get there. No, no, no. We have these six core values that say, this is how we're going to behave. And then we have a ministry strategy. This is how we'll get there. And that's what we're going to do over the next two weeks is just be reminded of who we are, what we do, and how we are strategically orchestrating and organizing ourselves in order to achieve that. And typically, when I preach a message like this, what I would do is I would start with mission. I would start with kind of the big umbrella thing that for me is why we even exist. That's the mission. That's the big umbrella. And then I would kind of work my way down to vision and values and strategy and those kinds of things. But what I want to do today is reverse that. I want to start with the kind of the bottom, uh, not bottom, but foundational core level thing that drives all of that. It drives values, it drives strategy, it drives vision, it drives mission. And in order to, to talk about that core foundational thing and then help us subsequently understand the vision to reinflate that turtle a little bit, to be reminded of what God has called us to, we have to use a little bit of insider language 
that, that kind of, you know, Christianese, you may have heard that phrase before, that church people use. And we try to avoid that kind of language as much as we can around here. As people use the word like, oh, we're just really pursuing sanctification. It's like, what does that even mean, right? Like, and that's okay, it's fine, it's a good word, it's a biblical word, but we try to avoid that as much as we can. But in this particular case, what we are called to do is so specific we have to use some insider terminology. And there are, there are places in life where you do have to use some insider terminology in order to describe, some, some insider nomenclature in order to describe what it is that you're doing. Uh, in fact, by way of example, how many of you came to our Christmas Eve service? Anybody come to Christmas Eve? Yeah, so when you came in on Christmas Eve, you would have got one of these. And this thing, the, the wax thing with the wick, what is that thing? Candle. That's not a complicated question. It's not a trick. What is that thing? It's a candle. What is this thing? A plate. No. It's a candle wax drippings catcher thingy. It's, I don't know. Do you know this thing has a name? Did you know that? It's a bobesh. That's what it is. You learn something new every day. See? Insider language to describe this particular thing. Ooh, by the way, Christmas Eve. Um, we had more people on our campus for a corporate worship service than any corporate worship service in the history of Bayview Glen Church, as far as I can tell. Very cool. That's number one. Number two, we gave away about $33,000 to awesome organizations around the greater Toronto area. That's a very cool thing. That's a very fun thing. Thank you for bringing people. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for using the Bobesh so that we didn't have to dedicate some of that money to cleaning up the chairs, all right? All of that money went to those organizations. What about this up here on the screen? Check this one out. Do you know what this is? Yeah, Starbucks. Somebody said Starbucks. Yes, Jesus, Spirit of God. No, this thing, you might call it a coffee sleeve. It's not a coffee sleeve. There's a technical name for it. It's a zarf. It's a zarf. Next time, next time you go through a Starbucks drive-thru, ask if they'll double zarf it for you. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if it's zarfs or zarves, right? It's like a scarf and scarves, zarf and zarves. Or what about this one? Uh, do you know what this thing is? The little uh, iPhone headphone adapter doohickey? I think that's what the technical name, it is a dongle. That is absolutely right. This is what kids are learning at Tyndale, is that these things are called dongles. I promise I won't say dongle any more than just like a couple more times in the sermon because it's an awkward word to say. See, in the same way, we have a calling as believers to make, create a certain thing. And if you, were, you met somebody on an airplane or at a restaurant or a coffee shop sometime and you're like, hey, what do you do for a job? And they're like, oh, I make czars. Or, you know, my company makes dongles. Or we manufacture bobeshes. You'd be like, what in the world is that? So here's the critical question for us. What do we make? What is it that we make? And Jesus uses some very technical, insider baseball kind of language to remind us what it is that we make. He says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore. He's saying, because of this, you're going to go. Uh, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. He's, in, in other words, this is the New Lucas translation. I'm the boss. I'm the king. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So I'm about to tell you to do something, and what you're going to say is, yes, I will do it. Because all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make what? Say that word with me, disciples. That's the insider baseball term. 
That's the equivalent of Zarf or Dongle or Bobesh, disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the very, very simple answer to that question, what do we make, is we make disciples. That's what we make. As a church, as followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. That's the widget that we're trying to churn out. So the question now is, what is a disciple? <laughs> if you're called to make bobeshes and you don't know what a bobesh is, or a zarf and you don't know what zarfs are, or a dongle, you don't know what that is, you're going to be up a creek without a paddle. So if we don't know what disciples are, we're going to be in trouble. And unfortunately, in kind of modern times, what has happened is that people have rendered this word in different Bible translations as like student, pupil, learner, apprentice, those kinds of things. And it is all of those things, but it's so much more than those things. A disciple is not just an apprentice or a learner or a pupil or a student. A disciple is so much more than that. And Jesus' disciples that he charges in Matthew chapter 28, just before he ascends into heaven to go and make more disciples, they would have understood what discipleship was because discipleship was a really normal, normative thing that happened in first century uh, uh, Judea and first century Palestine. They, it's not just that they were disciples, which they were, but they had other friends that were disciples. There were other rabbis and other disciples walking around all the time. We don't call ourselves disciples very much anymore. We use that term in church sometimes, but you don't hear people saying like, I'm a LeBron James disciple. And they're like, well, that's weird. You know, like you'd say that's, that's kind of a different, unique term to use. And because this word disciple is so rich and cogent, we, we, I just don't want to bring it into modern times and say, okay, what modern language can we use to help us understand the word disciple? No, 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 no. We just got to use that word disciple because that's what Jesus is calling us to. And there's a, there's a theologian, a modern theologian that defines this word discipleship and the definition reflects what Jesus' disciples would have inherently and intrinsically understood because they lived it out each day in their culture. They would have known this is exactly what Jesus means when he says, go and make disciples. And here's the definition of discipleship. Discipleship is not the same as being a student in the modern sense. A disciple in the ancient biblical world, listen closely, actively imitated both the life and teaching of the master. It was a deliberate apprenticeship which made the fully formed disciple a living copy of the master. That's one of my favorite theologians of all time. It's Saint Wikipedia, very, very good theologian. Man, you guys are rough on me this morning. Come on now. And I know that there's a bunch of like garbage on Wikipedia, but in this particular case, this is really, really good. This is accurate. This is what the disciples would have understood when Jesus says, go and make disciples, is go and churn out a widget, a person, an individual who is systematically reorganizing their life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a person who systematically reorganizes his or her life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. As Wikipedia would say, the disciple desires to become a living copy of the master. Disciples aren't just learning from the master. 
Disciples aren't just gaining or garnering some information from the master. Disciples aren't just observing the master to determine what things that they would apply to their life. This is what a disciple does. What time do you wake up in the morning? I wake up at six. Okay, then I'll wake up at six. Not a moment earlier, not a moment later. What's the first thing you do? Well, I make tea. I've been a coffee drinker in the past, but because you're a tea drinker, now I drink tea. Well, then what do you do? I shower and get dressed. Well, that's what I'll do. And what do you wear? I wear a suit. Okay, that's what I'll do. I wear jeans and a t-shirt. Okay, that's what I'll do. What does your family look like? Where do you exercise? What do you have for lunch? What do you do on the weekends? What makes you laugh? What makes you cry? Okay, that's why I laugh and that's why I cry. What do you like to read? What kind of movies do you like to watch? Who do you vote for? That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. A disciple is systematically deconstructing their own life and reconstructing it in order to become a living copy of the master. I'll be frank with you. This is the best, most compelling and brilliant brief definition of discipleship that I have ever, ever heard. And this definition of discipleship belongs to another brilliant theologian. His name's Dave Lewis Jr. (laughs) Everything I'm gonna say this morning, by the way, everything I'm gonna say is brilliant, and none of it's mine. It's all Dave Lewis's. I'm just preaching his content. It's because for the last however many years, a long time over Dave's life, and especially since he's had all his time to dedicate here to Baby Glenn, uh, this is what he thinks about. This is what he reads about. This is what he talks about, and he's come up with this definition of discipleship, and that's our goal, is to make disciples people who are systematically reorganizing their life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus to become Christians, literally little Christs, living copies of the master. And here's the thing about discipleship, and and this is one of the things that really hit me this week as I'm thinking and reading about this stuff, is that no one becomes a disciple on accident, ever. It never happens on accident. It always happens on purpose. It's too big, it's too difficult, it's too comprehensive. It's like going out and running a marathon. You don't just go out for a jog and go, I accidentally ran 26.2 miles. Weird. No, that doesn't happen. Like, one of the other things I want to compare it to, and I know I'm going to tread on some sticky ground here, tread on some thin ice here or something, uh, but I need you to stick with me. Um, I've talked to uh, uh, different people in the past about uh, exercise and diet and those types of things. And, and a lot of times um, when I have spoken to women about that, what I hear women say is that, you know, I just like to do cardio. Um, I don't want to lift weights because I don't want to bulk up. And like, I don't, I don't want to like bulk up, you know, like have like no neck. Like I don't want, I don't want to bulk up. Like, do you know what it takes to bulk up? Do you, do you have any idea? Nobody, you're not going to accidentally bulk up. Now stick with me. I'm just going to throw some numbers at you here. The average Canadian woman, I looked this up online, the average Canadian woman weighs 155 pounds. Now, some of you are already thinking, oh my gosh, this is incredibly thin ice. Just stick with me, okay? The average answer to that question is I weigh 150 pounds. So essentially what's happening is she weighs 155 Uh, She tells you she weighs 150. Uh, And I don't know if you're more than that or less than that. That's just the average. So in order to gain muscle mass, what you have to do as a 155-pound female is eat two grams of protein per pound of body weight every day. 
So that means you have to eat every day 310 grams of protein in order to gain muscle mass. That's in addition to training and lifting heavy and all that stuff. 310 grams of protein. Do you know what 310 grams of protein looks like? 10 chicken breasts. 10 a day. When's the last time you accidentally ate 10 grams or 10 chicken breasts? You got to the end of the day and like, you know what? I got a bag of chicken from Costco last week. And I started this morning at 8 a.m. and I've eaten the whole thing. Whoa, it came out of nowhere. It never happens on accident, ever. This is a purposeful, strategic, and focused endeavor. You don't run a marathon on accident. You don't put on uh, muscle weight on accident. You put on other kinds of weight on accident. I'm a living copy of that. But you, you, don't, you don't become a disciple on accident. It is a strategic and systematic restructuring of our lives. So here's the deal. We know what we're called to make. We're called to make disciples. We know what disciples are. There are men and women who are becoming living copies of the master, systematically reorganizing their life in order to become uh, people who reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. So, so, so that just simply begs the question, how do I become a disciple? How do I become a disciple? What, what are the things that I need to put in place in my life in order to run a marathon? Well, you need to start running, and you start eating different, and you start getting some uh, good rest, and you need to start, you know, kind of training in this particular type of way. What do I need to do in order to win a bodybuilding competition? Well, eat this many grams of protein and lift this much weight on this particular day and do this. There's, there's systems, there's structures, there's habits and practices that get you to that point. And in the same way, the Bible reflects and tells us about the habits and practices that the early disciples of Jesus put into place in order to see their lives in an ongoing manner reflect his character and his priorities. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 2. Luke writes this. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we'll do here in a few minutes, and prayers, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And, they, and all who were believed uh, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved See, this is a description of the early church. Just, you know, 50 days or so after Jesus had ascended into heaven, just when the Holy Spirit had descended upon the uh, disciples there at Pentecost, this was what the early church was doing. And in order to systematically reorganize their lives, in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus, they did this stuff right here. And Dave, Dave did this wonderful thing. He started to put all those pieces into his brain, not just here in Acts, but all throughout the Scripture and through the New Testament. Okay, so what are the things that people do in order to you know, implement these practices into their lives in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus? And he boiled it down to four phrases. Four. Four practices of a disciple. Four habits of a disciple. Now listen. You may have heard us talk about this before. If you've never written it down, write it down. If you've never memorized it, memorize it. Again, 
I've been doing vocational ministry for more than 20 years, and I have never heard such a memorable, portable, easy-to-understand definition and direction of what are the things that I need to do, what are the habits that I need to incorporate in my life each and every day in order to become a disciple of Jesus. If your desire is to become his disciple, which I hope it is, Four things that are reflected in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the rest of the scripture that disciples do. They are always discovering a life connected to God and others. They're always discovering a life connected to God and others. We've worded these really, really carefully and strategically. So just so you know, this is present perfect tense. This is not past tense. This is not something you have discovered and now it's over. But each and every day, those who followed Jesus in those early days of the church were always discovering a life connected to God and others. Whereas they were once distant from God and had not been reconciled to him, Paul writes to the church and says, you've now been reconciled to God through Christ. So they were learning and growing and discovering what it meant now to be connected to God on a day-to-day basis, what it meant to be in relationship with him, what it meant to know that they were loved by him, what it meant to live out the principles and practices of discipleship in a life connected to God. The second thing that you see there in that early church, and this is very, very interesting, uh, is, is a life connected to one another. Whereas people had been fractured and distant from one another in the past, now they were living connected to one another. In the Old Testament, there's this story uh, about what's called the Tower of Babel. You may have heard of that story before. And essentially, humankind gathers together and builds a monument to its own glory. And the consequences of that, that decision is people were fractured in terms of language and even ethnic groups. And so uh, the, the, the consequences are they were disconnected from one another. Now, a lot of times we read that story or people in the past or Sunday school or whatever, you read that story and, and, and what the lesson is like, oh, that's where we get Portuguese, right? That's where we get Spanish and that's where we get Mandarin. That's, that's the core, that's the root of all the languages of the world. That's not really the point of that story. The point of the story is when mankind and humankind tries to build a monument unto itself, we're fractured. We're distant. We have strife and disconnection with one another. And in fact, in that early story in the Tower of Babel, it lists all those languages and those people groups that were fractured because of their sin. And then in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes along and these people groups that are gathered together in Jerusalem begin to hear the gospel and repent and come to Christ in repentance and faith... What you see is that they're now united. There's this radical, crazy, uh, uh, irrational unity that comes upon them because of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke in Acts chapter 2 lists those ethnic groups. And if you take the ethnic groups from the Tower of Babel story in the Old Testament and you superimpose them over the top of the list of the ethnic groups in Acts, you see almost the exact same list. What was once in disrepair because of our sin and rebellion from God, God is now renewing and changing and causing radical unity within the church. So now as his disciples, as living copies of the master, we have to always be discovering what it means to live a life reconciled to God and to one another. Unity in the church, reconciliation with people outside of the church, living in harmony with people who may be different from us and being a 
light in the world because of our unity. That's number one. Number two, we're always dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. You heard that verse in there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayer, the breaking of bread and prayer and fellowship. We are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Learning the principles of scripture, seeing the person of Christ as it's recorded in God's word, uh, praying to God and, and connecting with him. That's what a disciple does. Number three, a disciple is always declaring the good news about Jesus. And what I mean by this is, is of sharing a verbal witness about Jesus with somebody. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, a gospel tract or like an old school kind of way to share the gospel. And I don't mean to knock old school ways to share the gospel. Anybody heard of the bridge before? You heard of the bridge? Yeah, yeah. It, it's not my favorite thing, but I shared it with my friend who was 14 years old when I was 16 years old. He came to Christ in repentance and faith, and now he's been a missionary in a closed country in the Middle East for about 12 years. I mean, the Holy Spirit of God can still use those things. The one, the one that I don't like, and if you, if you don't, if you use this, please stop, is the... Um, the little gospel track that looks like a $100 bill. Have you seen those before? It looks like a $100 bill. So you're walking along and essentially you see a $100 bill on the ground. You're like, oh my gosh, I just found a hundred bucks. And then you open it up. And it's like, ah, it's just eternal life. You know, like stop using that one. It's tricking everybody. It's tricking. I'm a pastor. It tricks me. Okay. So, so it may be gospel tract. It may be evangelism strategy. It may be that. But you know what? Sometimes it's just Hey, before Jesus, I was really a mess, and then Jesus came along, and I'm just experiencing healing every day. That's a verbal witness about Jesus. That's just declaring the good news about Jesus. And disciples are always doing that. And disciples are always demonstrating the good news in all of life. Because remember, the good news is not just Jesus came to pay for your sin, die, uh, rise again on the third day, ascend into heaven so that you could go to heaven when you die. That's not the comprehensive gospel. The comprehensive gospel is Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom and to restore the kingdom of God and, and God's sovereignty, pay for the sins of humanity, and, and begin to restore and make all things new. So you can demonstrate the good news about Jesus in your workplace or in your school or in your family or in your neighborhood. And that's what disciples do. That's what little Christ do. Because Christ certainly shared a verbal witness about the kingdom. He would say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But he was also demonstrating the good news in all of life by coming alongside a leper who was sick and needed a friend. Uh, by sitting at a table with tax collectors and sinners. By being happy to go answer the questions of a religious leader in the dead of night. That was, that was a demonstration of the good news. That was a living embodiment of the good news. And that's what we're called to do, too. Four things. Always discover a life connected to God and others. Dedicate ourselves to God's word and prayer. Declare the good news about Jesus and demonstrate the good news in all of life. That's what disciples do. And that definition of discipleship is really the hinge on which the door of our vision swings. It's the foundational cornerstone that our entire ministry strategy and, and preferred future, our vision, our philosophy, our mission, it's all built on that call to make disciples. So take our vision, for example, our preferred future. Here's what we believe God has called us to at Bayview Glen, elders, pastors, and those of us who call this place home. God has called us to this. By 2030, 
we endeavor to be a family of 6,000, say this word with me, disciples. One more time, by 2030, we endeavor to be a family of 6,000 with 3,000 in life groups and 3,000 on serve teams. We're going to pick this apart one by one, but I want you to know that we don't desire to be a family of 6,000 converts or a family of 6,000 rear ends in the seat. We desire to be a family of 6,000 individuals who are systematically reorganizing our life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. This is something that's been simmering in the hearts of our elders and pastors for four to five years. It's something that we just recently introduced at, in April of May or last, of last year. And this is something as a church, as leadership, as ministry partners here, we've adopted. And, and listen to me, this is our only vision. This is what we believe that God has called us to. You know, and, and people could say, well, what about eradicating homelessness across the greater Toronto area or fighting against sex trafficking or, you know, wh whatever it is. Like, those are all good visions, but this is our vision and this is our only vision because the definition of division is simply more than one vision. Division is simply more than one vision. And so if we have more than one vision, what happens is we get division within the church and we know that Jesus commanded us not to do that. And so we have said together that this is our vision, and I want to pick it apart one piece at a time. By 2030, Bayview Glen Church endeavors to be a family, family. If you read the New Testament, all across the New Testament, there's family language. Jesus uh, talks about uh, be, us being his brother and sister uh, Paul says that you are adopted into the family of God. John, Jesus' best friend, says you have been given the right to be called children of God. The early Christians called each other brother and sister, not colleague, <laughs> not even friend. But now, because we're adopted into the family of God, you're my brother, you're my sister. And what do you do with your brother and your sister? You pick on them. You criticize them, and you make them do all the chores you don't want to do. And that's how I want to treat you people. That's really, I know my brother and sister, because they're a good brother and a good sister, would never leave me hanging, never leave me high and dry. That's the kind of place we want to be. I know they always got my back. I know they always care for me. I know they're always praying for me. They know me better than most people on the planet and love me anyway. Wow. That's the kind of place we want to be. We want to be a family, a family of disciples. Not just a family of disciples, but a family of 6,000 disciples. And I know that some of us kind of bristle on the, you know, when we attach numbers to things. It's like, well, this is not just all about numbers. It's not all about numbers. No, it's not. It's about lives being changed, and we just want to change more lives. And prayerfully... We have felt as elders, again, and as pastors and as our congregation that God has placed this number on our heart. Will we achieve it by 2030? Jesus may come back before then, right? And we don't know. We don't know. And it's up to God, but if we have no target, we're going to miss the target every time, right? So we just, uh, you know, attached this number. And this was something, again, that we prayed and discerned and sought the Lord over and felt like he continued to affirm it on the hearts of our leadership. And I know, too, that, like, you know, oh, 6,000, like, that's a really big church. I don't like big churches. Well, you wouldn't have liked the first church. 
because that's exactly how big it was. <laughs> so th that's just kind of where we're headed, not because we want to be big, but be because we are prayerful and hopeful that God would use us to reach our city and our community. We're going to be a family of 6,000 disciples with 3,000 in life groups and 3,000 on serve teams. And, and, and here's the thing. This whole life groups and serve teams model, that's really our strategy is what that is. That's how we'll get there. And that's what we're going to save until next week. So here's what I want to do to close. I want to remind you real quickly, just sum up what we talked about this morning and then exhort you, invite you to do two things or maybe just one or the other. Here's the deal. We are not called to make bobeshes or dongles or zarfs or oyster pails. Do you know what an oyster pail is? It's the to-go Chinese food box. It's literally called an oyster pail. Did you, you didn't think you were going to learn anything this morning, did you? And now you are. This is so good. We are called to make disciples. It's an insider term, but a disciple is someone who is systematically reorganizing their life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. And there are four practice, practices that are reflected in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the course of Scripture. Very memorable, very easy, very simple. Thank you to my friend Dave Lewis for distilling it down to these four practices. We are always discovering a life connected to God and others. We are always dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Every time we have an opportunity, we're declaring the good news about Jesus by sharing a verbal witness, and then we're demonstrating the good news in all of life. That's what a disciple is. So here's the exhortation, the invitation, is to say yes to God's invitation to become a disciple. Say yes to Jesus' invitation to become a disciple. Because when he says to those early men who are not disciples quite yet, come and follow me. That's what he's saying. Come be my disciple. Come do what I do. Say what I say. Love what I love. Laugh at what I laugh at. Go to bed when I go to bed. Wake up when I wake up. Eat what I eat. Love what I love. Talk to who I talk to. Avoid what I avoid. Do those things. So say yes to that invitation. And some of you maybe have said yes to the invitation to come to church, yes to the invitation to check out a program, or even yes to God's offer of forgiveness. Those are all really good things. But the call of Christ is come, be my disciple. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect on day one. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect any time before heaven. <laughs> but we work each and every day to allow God to form us into living copies of the master. So if you've never said yes to that invitation, that would be my encouragement and my invitation for you today. Uh, second, if you've said yes to that invitation already, my invitation would be to choose one of those discipleship practices and take one step toward one of those discipleship practices. Take one step. Like, okay, declaring the good news about Jesus. I'm not always great at that. I'm gonna start praying for one person in my life, just one. Don't start praying for 30 people in your life, right? Same way as you go run a marathon. Don't go out today if you haven't run ever before and try to run 26.2 miles. If you do, make sure you take your phone with you, right? Like, you don't go out and do this all in one fell swoop. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So just take one bite. So I'm going to start praying for one person that God would give me the opportunity and the courage to declare the good news about Jesus. Or, or, or I'm going to start dedicating myself to God's word and prayer this year. 
And so I'm going to read my Bible for 10 minutes a day, three times a week, just a step. I want to discover what it means to live a life connected to God and others. So I'm going to strategically get to know someone in my life that's different from me, a different faith background a different ethnicity, different socioeconomic group. I, I'm just going to strategically make an effort. Instead of hanging around a bunch of people who think like I do and talk like I do and value the same things I value, I'm going to reach out to somebody who's different from me and discover what it means to live a life connected to others and discover what it means to live a life connected to God. I'm going to look for opportunities to demonstrate the good news in all of life. I'm going to dedicate myself to prayer. I, whatever it is, you choose the step. You choose the practice. Just choose one, just choose one step as we endeavor to grow this family of disciples and to grow as disciples ourselves, as living copies of the master. Would you pray with me? God, I really have so many prayers for this church. And when I say this church, I don't mean the bricks and mortar. I don't mean the programs. I mean the individuals and the names and the hearts and the stories who are seated in this room right now. For those who were seated in this room at the 930 service, for those who couldn't join us this morning because of weather or illness or distance, it's people, it's names. God, this is the church I'm praying for, and I pray, God, that you would make our church a family of disciples. God, it's so hard sometimes when our church is big. It feels big, and it is big. We don't know everybody in the room, and, and so these, this task of becoming a family seems insurmountable sometimes. Or this task of becoming a disciple feels like two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes two steps forward and 19 steps back. God, encourage us, remind us of your great love for us and your grace for us. Encourage us and remind us that this invitation to discipleship is not because you just said so, but because you have come to give us life and give it to us abundantly. And you know that being a living copy of Jesus is the way that we experience the greatest joy, the greatest life. God, I would pray for radical unity in our church that the kind of hands in the middle mentality and feeling around this mission and vision and around these values and strategy that even we will talk about next week, that it would be inexplicable, that unity, that it would be irrational, that unity, that the world would look at us and say, they are unified under one flag and that flag is Christ and their desire to become more like him. God, just in a moment of confession, our church has not always been unified. So Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would pour yourself out over us. Give us unity. Give us passion and commitment and courage. Give us strength and endurance to run the race. Even as we look forward to the rest of this day, the rest of this week, and to a brand new year. God, as we implement these habits and practices, make us more and more like you. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said,